Before we begin part two, I'd like to thank uh, the Legion for hosting us and uh, very good lunch today. And also our various media outlets, uh, for Cheryl, uh, CKSU, Shop TV, for uh, also helping along with SACA. Um, next week, we have Devin uh, Marguerite and Jen Takahashi speaking about uh, conversion therapy, adding conversion therapy in Canada. And also on October 29th at the library, there's a talk about um, off-road vehicle use. I, I think it's at 7 o'clock. Yeah, 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock, who knows. Um, so we're going to open up the floor for a uh, question and answer period. And we have a microphone set up right over here. Uh, if you'd like, if you have pertinent questions, please like. I would like to also stress that it's a question and answer period and not a personal statement period. So we can keep the uh, questions pertinent to the point. And I'd like to do welcome our speaker, Dr. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. Do you think the negotiations would be different if Lopez Obrador had already taken the presidency of Mexico? Uh, so that was a good question, but it was uh, it would the negotiation have been different if the uh, new Mexican president had uh, taken office? I believe that was the question, right? Yes. Yeah. He's a socialist. Yeah. Well, it, wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't have made things easier. I mean, again, that was another deadline. I, I think the main deadline was the midterm elections for the Americans. Um, so if that if that deadline came and went, uh, we were talking about that a little bit at the table. I don't think there was a whole lot of interest in Canada and, and with the new administration of Mexico jumping right back to the table and trying to get something done. So uh, if we didn't. We didn't have that midterm election deadline. Uh, I think probably we would still be stretching out a very long negotiation, which may not result in anything. But uh, the timeline again, I think, was really driven by the Americans. I was wondering if you could uh, just explain a little more how the new provisions on limiting auto manufacturing exports dovetail with the old ones. In which the particular thing I'm thinking of, you can. Give the background on this, I believe it goes back to the 1960s where manufacturers in Canada, like with the head office in Detroit, could produce, you know, say, if they wanted to make a, um, sell a million cars in Canada, they had to also produce a million cars in Canada. It didn't have to be the same million cars. But I'm just wondering how that all dovetails together with the new uh, Good question. Uh, I can't say I've been through, I think somebody's trying to get in. <laughs> I, I, I haven't been through the, the detailed provisions of the agreement in that area, so I, I'm not sure I can really uh, give you a complete answer on that. But, uh, I mean, there's, the thing you have to understand about automobiles in North America is, as you pointed out, it's a, it's a five-decade, six-decade-old evolution of a, of a North American automobile regime, essentially, right? So, 60s, it started with the auto pack, where we began to integrate our auto industries. Uh, Canada US for Trade Agreement further integrated it, NAFTA further integrated it, and now we have the new agreement which again will just reinforce that. But the biggest thing is just supply chains now, it's so efficient. 
uh, to produce and move vehicles back and forth now. So I honestly don't know uh, the specifics of what you're asking, but uh, so sorry. Understand why they're still there and don't understand the economics of it to begin with. 
Yeah, uh, well, the economics of it don't make any sense. You're right. Um, uh, because it hurts American uh, consumers of those products as well. I mean, they, they were brought in under rather curious circumstances anyways. It was national security provisions. So countries are allowed to protect industries and throw up tariff walls under national security concerns. And that's what the uh, Trump administration did on aluminum and steel was they're arguing that it's a threat to the national security. That's the reason why the tariffs were raised, which is, you know, a ludicrous argument to put it mildly. Um, why they're still here, that's a very good question because, and again, I, I don't know, I can't crawl into the head of this particular administration. Uh, but my, 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 I think, I would, I would guess it has something to do with whatever data they have about midterm elections and where particular uh, uh, electoral districts where there's a lot of steel workers and, uh, and uh, aluminum folks or whatever, where that's going to still play and potentially swing, or, uh, swing a, a decision or a, a seat in the Senate or the House, right? Because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why they're still on now. Um, they, I think they accomplished what they were unless this is the uh, the other way you look at this is another way of setting up. Because we're going to have to find another war with Americans to solve the problem, too. So, I mean, they could be leaving on the table with some, something to uh, leverage in part of that discussion as well. So, but my hunch is it seems like a very short term vision with this White House. So, I would think that probably it has something to do with midterm elections that I don't fully understand. But it's just a guess. And then the last thing is the last thing. Yes. Uh, you indicated that with Mr. Freeland and the uh, team from Canada, the negotiating team through their climate change, that that was a bit of a red herring. Um, I wonder if you would add to my first question is, would you tell us what they said about that? And my second question links to that, and that is the other evening in the Prentice Institute, uh, giving a talk at the library, and um, one of the main things they were talking about was the big problems on the planet that the planet is facing for climate change. I'm just wondering if you see in your studies of these different trade mechanisms uh, possibilities for nations to exert one on the other changes in the way, let's say, automobiles are traded across borders, such that we put quotas on so many of these automobiles have to be electric. So many have to have lower emission standards, blah, 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 that relate to climate change. Would this be a mechanism for dealing with some of these gigantic global problems? Okay, so a couple pieces there. Uh, don't get all of it. I mean, the one thing about what Canada is doing with the, with the negotiations regarding these issues on, I want to be clear that Canada does have what's called a progressive trade agenda. So uh, we, as a government, and this uh, Minister uh, has made it very clear that these issues are important. Uh, it's called a progressive trade agenda, the progressive trade agenda. And so it is the fact, this is point that you were making there, is that we should be discussing issues about climate change, and we should be discussing gender, we should be discussing inequality, those types of issues in trade agreements. So this government has come out and made a commitment to, to do that, at least in writing, right? But in terms of the negotiations, what I've been told by people who were involved in the negotiations is that they knew from the get-go that it was going to be impossible to do any of that in this particular agreement. Uh, because it was pretty clear what the agenda was. And as I said, we were always on the defensive from, from the beginning. So the strategy that they adopted was that 
well, we're just going to keep throwing all this on the table so that we can take it off or something because we know it's not going to happen. And oh, by the way, we have this progressive trade agenda over here that we, we committed to. So we have a way of defending ourselves that way. But So in this particular negotiation, I don't think it was realistic to think that we could accomplish any of that. So now, previous negotiations we have dealt with some issues. The, the original NAFTA had a labor side deal and an environment side deal. There were commissions set up, uh, an environmental North American commission was set up, a labor commission was set up. And then there were some things there, but there was no enforcement mechanisms on how to follow through and no real penalties or teeth. So it was, I would say, insignificant because it was, and that was a political compromise that Clinton made to sell the agreement to the United States. And that was what he had to get in NAFTA in order for that to happen in the US at that time. Uh, Canada has signed other agreements. Uh, there's the Canada Chile Agreement, for example, that has a, a clause on gender in it, um, in terms of gender equality, but it's it's pretty much what you expect. It's pretty watered down, doesn't have a lot of, uh, there's not much you can do with it in terms of following through and launching dispute panels or, or anything like that. There's no enforcement of it, right? So um, the bottom line is you have to, if you're going to negotiate an agreement where those things are going to be included, Whichever partner you're dealing with is going to have to be interested in doing that as well. Uh, and the Europeans would probably have been the ones that would have been most open to a lot of those discussions. Uh, but again, you get bogged down in these rules, discussion about rules, and they're very complicated and technical. They drag on for a very long period of time. Uh, those things can be shoved to the side. And, and um, so I'm not saying it's impossible that it'll ever happen, but uh, it's certainly. Uh, a number of things. There are a number of obstacles in the way in that. Thanks very much for your talk. My name is Dave Major. <clears throat> I have a, a perception from some time in the States that the U.S. has supply management for sure. And I'm wondering if you can tell me what you said from the trips. Well, they do, they, I'm sure they manage their supply in some ways, right? Managed, supply management systems, that I kind of brought up the presentation, it's not one thing, right? It's a combination of different policies. So in Canada, we use the, it's the holy trinity of tariffs, price fixing, and quotas, right? That's how we do it. So the Americans have those types of things in various sectors of their economy. I mean, Americans are extraordinarily protectionist about certain sectors of the economy. Like sugar, for example, is, is uh, uh, used to be tobacco, not, not as much anymore, but you know, we try and uh, deal with the Americans to lower areas on sugar, it's not going to happen. So they'll have pieces elements, so they'll have tariffs there, they'll have quotas there, they'll have, I, I, don't, I don't know about price fixing for sugar, I'm sure it probably is a piece of that, but, uh, so yeah, all governments do this in one way or another. To well, my understanding is in the Red River Valley and, and sugar cane and so, that you have to have a contract to be able to grow it. Yeah. And, and uh, like our sugar producers can't export yeah. sugar. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I guess my question is, why don't why don't we say, well, how come you're criticizing our supply management when you have it yourself? Well, I'm, I'm sure it came up in the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a totally valid point. And and uh, I know Canadian trade negotiators. Like I said literally one one of the Canadian strategies was to bring in. The easel boards, I'm not sure with PowerPoint, um, not easel board anymore, but to literally give presentations that Americans would walk in ready to negotiate, the Canadians would bring out their PowerPoint slides and start giving lectures to the Americans. You know, and this was, a, again, a strategy on trying to cope with this uh, negotiation, and uh, I'm sure the, the sugar issue probably came up numerous times in those conversations, but uh, again, it, it 
they're, they're not prepared to budge. It's, there's only so much you can do. Hi, my name is Henry. My name is Henry Lindo. I have two quick questions. One continues on with the supply management in terms of the dairy. Uh, I haven't seen it in the press, but I don't know whether it was on the, on the uh, PowerPoints or the uh, boards. But the US, apparently, for their milk products, they are with hormones which are forbidden by the Canadian producers. How was that dealt with? The other question is that the super terminator to the saltier terminating one ingredient after another, not ratifying or not getting that. Lately, I've heard that uh, um, uh, rumblings that uh, he's against the WTO. So what would be the ramifications of the US pulling out of the WTO in connection with what's just been negotiated here? Yeah, okay, so two things. Uh, the hormone issue, Canada still has the ability to regulate and control um, you know, health and safety standards and regulations. So uh, I don't think a lot of what was dealt with in the USMCA really didn't have to do with consumer milk. It was more to do with industrial milk and then more large scale cheese production and things like that. So I, I don't see anything in there uh, that would limit Canada from continuing to regulate its health and safety standards in that particular industry. Uh, that's I'd be shocked if there was anything that would not allow us to do that. Um, as far as the second part, I, I do honestly think that this is, I think there's a much bigger game being played here by the American administration in terms of international rules and norms. Uh, not just on trade, as you pointed out, I pointed out the presentation also on uh, the nuclear proliferation regime um, and other agreements that have been signed, I think this is a very clear indication of, of what this administration wants to do, and that's to withdraw or threaten to withdraw from as many of those rules-based commitments as humanly possible. Because rules aren't good things for large countries that want to do things on their own, right? They tangle, and this is why Canada loves rules, because we tangle up big countries with these agreements, and we make it difficult for, to, for them to do things, right? That's why multilateralism is, that's why we've, we've always done that here in Canada. So in order to have as much autonomy and autonomy and ability to do whatever you want, the, the least amount of rules, the better, if you're a large power like this government, so, um, or this administration. So I, I think there's definitely a pattern going on here in terms of trying to get out of as many of those commitments as possible. WTO, they could walk away from that, but again, so rules-based trade actually helps the Americans Ways too, right? So it's not a, it's not a, this, again, this administration seems to see the world as a relative gain sort of a scenario where there's always a winner and always a loser. And in rules-based trade, that's not the case, right? Sometimes you win, sometimes we win. Uh, sometimes the, the rules will benefit you, sometimes the rules will benefit us. And there's a lot of, of what's in the WTO uh, that is actually quite beneficial to the United States. Like intellectual property, for example. So. Do you take uh, you take away all the rules regarding intellectual property and allow everybody in the world to steal American patent and copyright to, at, at, the, at their whim sort of thing? I mean, it's probably not something that we want to see happen. So uh, I think getting out of the WTO is a much different uh, game than what happened here, I think, personally. Hello, my name's Cheryl Bradley, and this I guess Following on that vein, I would assume that countries enter into trade agreements because there's mutual benefit in doing so. Otherwise, why negotiate? 
And along that line, with the original NAFTA, uh, I think there was a hope that it would help bring Mexico along and raise standards of living in Mexico and employment. Um, I'd like to know, from your perspective, whether that indeed occurred for Mexico, and also whether the um, requirement in this new USMCA, uh, which requires a certain percentage of jobs in the health sector in Mexico to be $16 an hour, will that benefit Mexico? Will, will those jobs actually happen, or will they be lost to Canada? Yeah, so the original NAFTA, what happened was you got the creation of what they called maquiladoras, which were manufacturing plants, some mostly around the automobile sector, but not all of them, on the, on the Mexican states that are close to the American borders. So you got pockets of workers who were, there was more jobs and there was better wages, and so some people benefited from it, but typically the ones in the northern Mexican states that were attached to the maquiladora industry, but not any but close to sort of the workers' rights or wages that you would see in other parts of North America. So benefits, yes, uh, small numbers of people are interested in specific regions of Mexico, um, but certainly not, uh, and a lot of people argue that just bringing Mexico into the, the global economy in a more integrated way uh, trickle down your health. I mean, there's still a lot of problems in Mexico, though, right? So um, not that NAFTA would have been a magic pill to fix all that. Um, so the second part of the question was, I think I already forgot what the second part of the question was. The wage increase. Uh, oh, with the, $16 an hour, yeah. yeah. So no, there's nothing obligating the Mexicans to raise, raise wages to $16 an hour. There's nothing at all. Uh, it just means that if you want, if you own that factory and you want to stay a part of that supply chain, so let's say you're someone who's in the automobile supply chain, I'm just going to pick something, uh, let's pick windshields. So let's say you're the, the best windshield factory in North America and you're located in one of these Maquiladora Mexican border states. Well, you're going to want to pay your wages, your workers, $16 an hour until you can reach that threshold, right? What is it? Whatever, 40% or whatever it was, $16 an hour, something like that. Once you hit that threshold, that's all you have to get. So, but if you don't, if you're not part of that supply chain or if you're not doing something at that level where you need to access to these, these things, you're going to continue to pay your, your workers uh, limited amounts, whatever the wages that it is now, or less. So there's nothing obligating the Mexicans to raise wages. Just they want to stay in the supply chain and be part of that 40% that raise their wages. That's all it does. Trading off economic things or social things. Um, so 
Yeah, a lot of it exists in, in, in different. Uh, we have we have we have good regulations regarding agricultural food. Uh, so I'm like robbery. We have uh, strong regulations regarding agriculture and safety. My name is uh, Chris. Chris, I'm wondering if you could speculate a little bit uh, on the proportionality clause that was got kicked out of the new agreement, which possibly could be uh, significant in the future. It's probably not so much now that oil is money for the United States. Uh, but if it, uh, for example, where it's covered water, and I don't know if that should be covered under that or not, but I can see the day where Canada will be shipping a lot of water down to the States, but they would, the United States would want a lot of water from Canada. So I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so two things. I mean, the original NAFTA had a, in the oil and gas sector, energy sector, uh, had a provision that said that we had to guarantee the U.S. market a certain amount of uh, energy, oil primarily. So on a two-year rotating cycle, so whatever we had exported them for a two-year period, we would have to guarantee that moving forward, and it would be basically giving the Americans a guaranteed supply of, and again, that was negotiated at a time when they, they didn't have an oversupply of oil, we needed to have a guaranteed access to the market, and that was part of the original NAFTA. So that's not in the agreement. Uh, they've taken that out. So um, what that means is suggested, we, we don't know what that means. I mean, it means that it will function uh, related to oil and, and, and energy related to market demands, right? So uh, if, you, if there's demand and people want to pay the price, then they'll, they'll purchase it. The water issue is a separate issue. Uh, water has been something that people have talked about. Well, water exports the United States have been a concern. Uh, leaving Canada for quite a while now, but it's not a new issue that's been lost. Uh, I've been aware of it for 15 years. Uh, Council Canadians and others, uh, Center for Canadian Policy Alternatives, have raised this as a, a major concern of theirs about potential bulk water exports to the United States. Um, right now, it's a, it's a, it's uh, there are some exports, but it's not, to, it's not to the level that is. Uh, raising uh, significant concerns yet. Also, provinces have a right to regulate how much goes, and some provinces have chosen to do this and others have not. I know British Columbia, for example, has legislation limiting the amount of bulk water exports that they will uh, ship out of the province. So, uh, and then you get in, and Dr. McCormick here would be better to talk about some constitutional issues around water, uh, where you have, uh, it's not a simple issue where one level of government has control over that, that issue. It's a, there's various ways the federal government gets involved, and various ways the province gets involved. So there's nothing in the USMCA that speaks directly to the export of home water. Well, thank you very much for coming to speak, and if Dr.
by the proposed rate restrictions and bans appropriate for off highway vehicle riders using our public land. And uh, please apply for that too. Thank you.